Hey, Rockheads, it's time for NDC Oslo again, June 15th through 19th in Oslo, Norway. Richard and I will be there, of course, as well as all your favorite speakers. World-class stuff here, folks. NDC-Oslo.com. We'll see you there. .NET Rocks, episode 1122, with guest Joel Kaufman. Recorded Saturday, March 21st, 2015. Thanks very much, and welcome back. It's .NET Rocks. Richard and Carl here. Hey, man. Howdy, howdy, howdy. This is the last show we're recording from the Nebraska Code Camp and just having a good old time here. I really enjoying myself. I, I love Midwesterners. They're so polite. <laughs> Garrison Keillor isn't kidding when no. he says we're polite to a fault, you know? Well, and a challenge with bios and things because they don't want to talk about themselves. No. Yeah, it's really interesting. It is interesting, but the nicest people here in, in Lincoln, Nebraska. Really had a great time, and uh, I think we're going to find a steak tonight. Absolutely. Yeah. But uh, in the meantime, uh, we're going to be talking with uh, Joel Kaufman in a minute about uh, debugging. So I have an appropriate Better Know framework. Awesome. All right, buddy, what do you got? Well, as you know, I love SignalR. I know this. And uh, SignalR is great for any kind of real-time communication, one-to-many, many-to-one. One-to-one, doesn't matter. Right. Um, pretty close to real-time communication. And uh, it scales really well in the back end. It just love it. If you've been paying attention in the last couple of years, uh, or last year anyway, you'll know. So uh, I found this great thing at uh, the Code Project, uh, tinyurl.com slash logwithsignalr. And what this is, is some code for doing streaming logs with SignalR, too. And this is from April 2014 uh, by Andra Morsky. And uh, it just basically shows you some code to, to wire it up. When you, uh, and let me just read the synopsis here. It says, sometimes you need to read online log streams from your website, but you don't always have FTP access to log files or Visual Studio to attach to process and read the debug output. And even if you did have FTP, you still can't really see it in real time. No, right? no, not at all, because it it's blocky, right? You have to wait for the file to finish. Right, so in this article, we'll use SignalR and NLog to send log events to a web browser. Cool. So how cool is that? You can see in real time what's going on in your, uh, and now NLog does that, but now you can attach SignalR and see it from anywhere. Mm -hmm. Just uh, make sure your security settings are appropriately set. What could go wrong? Because what could go wrong? So there you go. It's, uh, it, and it looks pretty simple, just, a, just literally a few lines of code, and you're done. And five stars. On this one, streaming no, like signal R2. Yes, they do. Mm -hmm. So know it, learn it, love it. Who's talking to us, Richard Campbell? Grabbed a comment off of show 1113, the one we just did with Steve Evans. We were talking about how his IT pros now are managing source code around PowerShell and things like yeah, that. Yeah, And we actually started getting ready to this idea that there is an extension for Visual Studio and, and maybe the... The IT Pro should be using Visual Studio so that they have access to all the studio's resources, including source management. Right. They're learning PowerShell. They could just as easily learn C Sharp. Right. I, I well, think, I don't even oh, think they want to change the language. They really want the IDE. Yeah. yeah you know? Yeah. And Mark Seaman, our friend Mark Seaman. Yeah, yeah. Been on the He's show the before. inspiration for Music to Code Music by. to Code by wrote this awesome comment. He said, uh, the pining for getting PowerShell into Visual Studio for the main purpose of getting version control support is, in my opinion, not the proper motivation. Hmm. And then he has a few points. 
do by all means use version control, but do yourself a favor and use Git. You can yeah. use Git with TFS if that's your preferred environment. Since you're using Git, right, you must take the time to learn to use it from the command line. True, the learning curve is steeper, but you're going to be more effective. Git GUIs tend to hide the complexity of Git, and that's actually a bad thing because it means that the user's mental model doesn't match how Git actually works, and it tends to lead to a lot of foot shooting. That's right, and not only does it hide the complexity, it adds more complexity by completely limiting making, you. Yeah, it limits yeah. you and confuses you at the same time. For sure. Not good. Third point, uh, when using Git from the command line, you can version control anything as long as it's file-based. Mm -hmm. As long as you rely on Visual Studio or any other integrated tool, you're always going to be behind in some way. Even if you get PowerShell into Visual Studio, there's going to be a shiny new thing that you'll want to version control next, and then you'll want Visual Studio for that as well. Use the right tool for the job. Visual Studio is a great code editor, but Git is the best Git available. And don't forget, you could always write a batch file and then shell out and execute it yourself if sure. you don't want to. Uh, I mean, you know, that's, that's a trick that we've been doing for years. Mm -hmm. You know, the funny part is most ops guys work on the command line. Yeah. Right? I mean, they use PowerShell from the command line anyway. I would think they would take to Git, the true Git at the command line, faster than a lot of devs would. Yeah. You know, folks that are used to living only in the GUI. Yep. So, yeah, interesting thought, and uh, I'm, I'm really excited about the reaction that folks had around that show with Steve. Yep. Just thinking, you know, one of the reasons that, that operation development are getting close together is they're doing more of the same thing. Yeah. And uh, it's just a question of what's the right way for you to do it. And you're right, I mean, you could put anything into Git as long as it's a file. Right. So, Mark, thank you so much for your comment, and you're welcome to come back on the show anytime. But uh, we'd like to send you a .NET Rocks mug, so send your mailing address to me. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or with any of our mobile apps, because we've got them for Windows Phone 7 and 8, Windows 8, iOS, and Android. And Joel Kaufman is here. He's been involved in development for the last 10 years in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. He's worked in both finance and agriculture as a web developer and proponent of modern development practices. Uh, he's spoken in multiple conferences in the Midwest on topics such as Web API, Nancy FX, and PowerShell. He can be found on Twitter at ifranto. I f r a n t o. Welcome, Joel. Well, hi. Debugging. Yes. Ever done the real-time debugging thing with Signal R or anything like I that? I have not, but I've, it's it's interesting. Yeah, and I guess it's logging. It's not so much debugging. Right. But yeah, the de the debugging tools in Visual Studio are awesome. But as we learned when we talked to uh, Tess Ferrandez, which was... 2009? 2009, yeah. good lord. Most developers don't use 80% of what they could be doing with it. Right. Well, the thing that I've found is um, developers go to school, they learn how to code. No one teaches debugging. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Because it's hard. It's a different way of thinking right. about the problem. Right. Well, in order to teach debugging, you must write code that has bugs, and we all know professors don't write bugs. Right. Curriculum never has bugs in mm -hmm. it, actually. So everyone that, out there that knows how to program is just, they've learned to debug on their own, basically, or they worked with someone who sort of showed them the ropes. But I get uh, junior devs or, or new people, and they come and they ask you, well, what's this error mean? And it's, you know, the error message says, like, couldn't find the file at C colon backslash full path file yeah. name. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's not a lot to debug, actually, <laughs> does it? No. <laughs> Do you find that most people just debug by Google? 
Sure. And I, I mean, if you've never seen the error message before, I yeah. don't know that that's a bad thing to do. Oh, no, it works great. Yeah, that's, <laughs> my, that's my go-to tool, Between really. Google and Stack Overflow. Right. Well, Google usually brings you to Stack Overflow. <laughs> that's, that's true. <laughs> but sometimes it may not. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and there are no, there, there's no magic potion. There's no magic pill mm. uh, that gets you to debugging. So what are some of the things people miss? I mean, the obvious things, we, we put a breakpoint, we look at the variable, we see the stack, we understand where things come from. But what are some of the things people miss? Well, a lot of people don't even go that far. Really? Yeah. So a lot of people are just like, oh, I've got an error, and I'm just going to Google it without even looking at their own code. No. Really? <laughs> oh, yeah, of course. And then even then, you know, if you get them to look at the stack trace, they say they look at the first line of the stack trace where it blew up in system.data.sql client. Right. Yeah. So they're well, like, that's oh, it's a bug yeah. in, in the .NET framework. That's not my code. <laughs> yeah. Goodness knows. Mm. Yeah, it doesn't matter that you passed it a null. When yeah. You're, <laughs> you're not yeah. actually looking at the, you're, really, you're not looking at the caller, the stuff you wrote. <laughs> right. I take a little they, fun out of it. So they're just looking at the line where it finally, you know, threw an exception. Right. Because we listen to Doug Crockford. We don't write bugs. Yeah. We don't. So um, nulls are a big pain in the butt, aren't they? They yeah. are. If there is one thing I could change in the .NET language, the uh, object reference not set to an instance of an object would tell you which object was null. That would be easy, wouldn't it? Yeah, that'd be a useful thing. But I guess in order to tell you which object is null, you'd have to have an object reference. And if it's null, wait a minute. No, no, <laughs> you're just saying the variable. Which right, variable, the vari yeah. which variable was null. Isn't, isn't that the sorry message? That's sorry, yeah. Object not found. Because <laughs> there's really only three. Yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> How? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> All right, yeah. so... But, you're, you know, the interesting part about this is people just don't even read the error message. I got an error is what they say. Right. Right. And then they just try and run it again because maybe it won't happen this time. Well, sometimes that works. That's the worrying <laughs> part. Sometimes you fix it and you're like, I'm not happy with this fix. <laughs> right. It, it well, and uh, right. The, the, the proverb is that if you do something uh, over and over again and expect, and expect different, result, different results, that's, crazy. Uh, that's the definition of insanity. Except right. in technology <laughs> where we're like, okay. What we want you to do is turn everything off and turn it back on and then try it again. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, a lot of times that works. <laughs> yeah. And that's disturbing. It is. I, test, I had that issue in my class uh, just uh, the other day. And you turned it off and on and it worked. So, yeah. It's some weird file reference was left open and it couldn't be compiled. And the answer was to close down Visual Studio, open the project, and it just ran. Wow. Now, I mean, Microsoft built a ton of debugging tools into Studio and the whole .NET development. I mean, people learn those, theoretically. And it doesn't teach you to debug, per se, but it's like you do have tools. Yeah, and the tools in Visual Studio especially are fantastic. Um, I have a friend who mostly develops in Node right. and sees the tooling for Visual Studio and says, that looks fantastic. Please. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, because basically, if you're going to debug Node, you're just you're literally doing debug prints. You're just right. spitting I mean, it's JavaScript. Out. So yeah. I mean, it's like the old ASP. Yeah, yeah. Just, just console right or output. What was it? Response dot write. Output. Yeah. Response dot write. Yeah. <laughs> and response dot end. <laughs> yeah. That's it. Give up on page now. <laughs> yeah. So should we talk? If if you're saying that 
the majority of developers that you talk to don't even go that far to put a breakpoint to look at in the stack trace and go look through their references and stuff. Should we talk about debugging 101 here? Is, do we need to do that? That's a lot of what my session at this conference was about. Okay. It was about read the error message, look at the stack trace. If you have the code, you can go figure out what happens. So let's right. start with what's a stack and what's a stack trace. Let's start there. Why not? Okay. Well, stack, Let's go to old school. Yeah. yeah. So the stack is the, the call stack, um, the order the functions were called. Right. And for those who don't know what a stack construct is, wow, we might as well. Like Why Computer not? Science 101. Uh, it, it was told to me as think of a stack of cafeteria trays and it's a memory structure like an array is a memory structure you know like a string is a memory structure but a stack is you know you you put something down on it and then you have to take them off in reverse order so essentially this is the way that functions are called if you have a function that calls a function that calls a function well the function that you're calling before you can call on it you have to push the address of the function that you're calling it from onto the stack so when you finish the function you're calling, you can go back to where you were by picking up the, the last item. It's sort of like a trail of breadcrumbs, isn't it? Yeah. So, so the stack is what the order of functions that were called, as you said, mm -hmm. and the stack trace is a listing of those functions. Yes, in the order that they were called. And also, all, all too often, like you said, the actual point of the error occurs in a library you didn't write because you passed it something inappropriate or something's gone wrong to get there. Right. And it's you actually usually, have to go back up the trace to figure out where you went wrong. Right. I mean, it's theoretically possible that you've uncovered a bug in the .NET framework. Theoretically. Very theoretically. <laughs> at this time... You're the first probably, person to ever call that. No, really. <laughs> probably not at this point in time. But, yeah. but yeah, it's usually something that you have passed that is incorrect right. for, for whatever reason. Now you've got to figure out why. But use the stack trace. Go down and find out where it was, where, where this got called and where that got called and just keep going back until you find, uh, right. find something. And you so can do you at, set... You can at least narrow it down to a method. Right. Right. So what I typically do is I set a breakpoint at a place where I know I've got something good. And then uh, if I continue to step through that and I find I'm stepping without any problems, I'll jump ahead a little bit, set a breakpoint there and press F5 to get to that point. And if I don't, I know that it's somewhere between those two. <laughs> yeah. right. So you could just start narrowing it down. Right. Um, one of the things that has been a problem in the past but um, will be solved in Visual Studio 2015 is the ability to use lambdas in the watch window. Wow. We're going to be able to do that. Yes. I had not read this. You mean in the immediate window or the watch the window? The watch window. So the watch window is where you watch a variable to see if it's changed. Right. And You'll so not be able to write lambda expression. expressions. Yeah. You think about how much trouble you can get into with that? Yeah, um, give me an example of where you would do that, because the, th the only place where I write any expressions is in the immediate window. So what, what do you do in the watch window? Well, oftentimes, uh, if you run into a, a bug uh, or a, an exception in, in a Lambda expression that's already in your code, okay. you want to maybe see a subset of that expression right. to oh. see what's going on. Oh, you're saying you can watch a Lambda expression. Right. Not write a Lambda expression in the watch window, but no. you would, can watch a Lambda. Yes. Wow. 
That's cool. Right. And previously you couldn't. No. Yeah. It's not a, it's not a, because really the watch window is just pointers into positions of memory, right? Yeah. You just want, let me know when this value is changed. Right. For whatever, I don't care what piece of code changes it, but when it changes, I want to know. That is so cool. Yeah, that's pretty profound, actually. Wow. Now what happens? Yeah, continue. <laughs> okay. So, um, those are some of the basics, but one of the big things that I also talk about in the session is uh, ways that you can help yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, uh, the easiest thing would be to not write any bugs in your software. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But um, don't catch exceptions unless you can fix them. Unless you can do something about it. Right. There's so few exceptions you can actually do something about. Really. Right. Uh, maybe like a, a SQL timeout. Right. You could retry it. You could retry it. Or, and it might, that timeout might be because it's in a cluster and it's in a failover state and it will recover giving a couple of minutes. Right. But most of the time when you talk about errors that are really recoverable, it's like the printer's out of paper. Hmm. Right. Go right. do something physical, then come full. back. Exactly. Where most errors, you just propagate them back to the user or eat them and die. What I tend to do is I use my uh, catch statements mostly while I'm developing, you know, to find the problems that... Mm-hmm. That are, are code related, you know? Yeah. And then once I know what those problems are, then I can narrow down my responses and maybe even remove the catch, uh, the try catch if I, if I can, if I feel daring enough. Right. Well, one of the things is if you go back to, you know, people are learning .NET development in school, hmm. you don't want the program to blow up when you give it to your professor. So the first thing you put inside the method is just a giant try catch. Yeah. So that there won't be an exception. Yeah. Yeah, and just eat it. Just eat Swallow the exception. Make happy noises. And right. nothing happens when I press this button. Why? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. But when you catch those exceptions, they don't get logged anywhere. Right. Yeah. And that's sort of the reality of it is you don't, there's built-in logging for allowing regular fails to propagate, especially in services. They're going to show up in the event log. You don't have to write anything there. Just let it happen. Right. You know, and it will go in the event log, and you can see the stack trace. And your service gets killed like you were going to do anyway. It's just done automatically for you. Right. Don't fight the system. It's just, you know, I think we, I think we have funny issues around allowing your app to fail. Right. Or, or in general, just allowing the problems that occur with all of these things. So... Uh, obviously going backwards in the trace, well, this all gets into this whole idea of what do you log and how do you log it to actually understand errors, right? We, we're still talking about immediate window and, and debugging directly in studio. But what do you do if you want, you know, if you've got a running app, I can't reproduce this in studio. It's only, sure. the errors are only coming, occurring in the production app. Right. Well, um, obviously you can do remote debugging if you have access on the server yep. to uh, attach that's not cheap, though, in terms of resources. Like, it has a significant impact on the server. Yes. Signal R, baby. Yeah. But now, you're, now you're writing your own wrapper for all of that stuff. Yeah, it's not that hard. But you don't need to write your own. There's, there's libraries out there, standardized libraries right. for logging. Yeah. Um, there's Log4Net, yep. right, which is the, the port of the Java yeah. uh, library. Or uh, Elma. I have not heard of Elma. E L M A H. Error logging modules and handlers. Right. Oh, wow. Cool. Um, so Log4Net writes uh, logs to a text file. Elmo writes logs to a database. I see. 
This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by the bug-crushing superpower that is Raygun. If you're wanting to detect and diagnose errors and crashes in your software, even find problems that you didn't know existed to improve your software, then Raygun may be perfect for you. Add a few lines of code to your application, and in minutes you'll get real-time error reports with all the information you need to fix bugs fast. You can even hook it up to your team chat, bug tracking, and development workflow tools. Raygun covers all major web and mobile programming languages and platforms, including .NET, the full Xamarin stack, JavaScript, and many more. Go check out Raygun today at raygun.io and say hello for us. Who was the, the show we did? Was it Nicholas Blumhart? Yeah, on yeah. structured logging. Right. And we were talking about uh, uh, the, uh, the, Serilog, the Serilog product and just He's the fact that it would log to wherever you wanted it to. And provide detailed data, like you could create a, a structure, a data structure, mm -hmm. and populate that, and it would essentially write all of that to the log, right? Not just the, not just the the, the error number, data. the message. yeah, the error number, and the message, but detailed data. Yeah. And then there's even things. El, there are cloud services for Elma, mm -hmm. so uh, you can then, you know, if you have uh, apps running on mobile devices, they can send their their error logs. Mm -hmm up to the server and yep. okay. you can see them later. Catch all this stuff. Um, crash dump analysis. That's what we were talking with uh, Tess Ferrand yeah. is about. Is that your forte? It's not. Here's, That's hard here's, stuff. Here's what I... You know, when I was a kid, I really th like thought quicksand was going to be a problem later in life. <laughs> <laughs> That's what was on TV. Right. I mean, uh, I have never once seen quicksand, but I was certain that I would see it at least a couple times a week. Right. right. Uh, given Gilligan's the Island information that I had seen, right? <laughs> the Lone Ranger. Um, Brady Bunch. <laughs> except at scale, it's rare to run into race conditions and memory leaks. Right. Yeah. Um, in yeah. an app. Yeah. Um, not that they don't happen. Mm -hmm. And when the, you, they do, then you need to look at something like uh, Windy Bug mm. uh, and reading memory dumps. Much more sophisticated tooling. Yeah. yeah. Well, you've sort of got a good problem by the time you're at the race condition memory right. leak scenario. Yeah. You have an app that is in the field being used enough that it's straining the resources of a machine. And, you know, before 64-bit operating systems, memory leaks were a big problem because yeah. we didn't have gigs and gigs of RAM. <laughs> you can leak for a long time these days. Just ask Chrome. <laughs> uh, I love my job. Yep. Seriously. <sighs> I know. There's a couple of times I pop up in the task manager trying to figure out what's going on with the machine. I've got 25 Chrome windows what open. What are you doing? And... But, but some of got, them are pulling. You've in. only got two tabs. Yeah, yeah. There's <laughs> right. all these Chrome instances running, and a few of them are massive. They gig of RAM for one Chrome instance. Like, what are you up to? You need to stop that. Chrome is the new IE. Yeah. Well, you know, it's the price of popularity. It's more like Oracle. <laughs> it's just big. Yeah. Well, they just they've allowed people. People have been developing for it. There's lots and lots of plugins and. And that stuff's just sort of accumulative. It's mm. cruft. Mm. And it's and it's I don't I don't blame the Chrome programmers, although admittedly they, they may not have been focused on this particular problem, but this is the price of success. 
One of the th- key uh, things that I love about Visual Studio these days is Code Lens. And one of the things I love about Code Lens is it tells you right on the line above your methods, property handlers, whatever, w- where the references are. And you can just click a link. But you may not know this, but if you just right-click on the method, I believe it is, you can it drops down a list and you can see a list of references. It's just not a heads-up display. Mm-hmm. So even if you don't have code lens, you can just look at a method, see where how many references are pointing to it, and then get a list of them, hyperlink to your code, to the places where code is being called. So that I find that an invaluable debugging technique when, when I want to answer that question, who's calling this? Right, or particularly if you have a method, uh, say you're failing because something's null, but that's not a variable that you instantiated. Right. It's something you were handed. Hmm. Hmm. Who else was involved in this little crime? <laughs> right. Where did this come from? Yeah, you, you know, you've called another external system that's feeding you back a null you didn't realize, and then you're passing it on. Yeah, you need to catch up with that. Any particular gotchas when dealing with link sets and sets that come back from link queries? Um, well, I mean, there's always the common, uh, somebody calls, you know, single and gets the error that there's more than one. Right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, because it can be a set. Yeah. You can get those traps inside a SQL server, too. Like, it's possible to write code, particularly in triggers, for example, where you're thinking about only one row is going to come back, and there can be multiple rows that come back in that case, and, and you're just not managing it correctly. Right. Well, and that's that has to do with trying to use a tool in a way it wasn't originally intended. Right. Right? SQL works on sets. Yeah. It should all be sets. Yeah, it's our mistake for any moment ever thinking single anything. <laughs> right. right. It's a set of one. That doesn't make it a single. It's a different concept. Yeah. You've always got to process it that way. But I mean, it, what's interesting with Link is that you've brought that set behavior into C Sharp. Right. And it's almost like a functional concept. Yeah, sort of functional expression inside of C Sharp that, that, that has a different set of behaviors. And you really, yeah, single's kind of a mistake there anyway. Right. And I've seen people that, you know, soft people in the SQL days that fought with this and just would say, only bring me back one row. I don't care that it's a set. It's always going to be one row. Yeah. And the idea that there would ever be more than one, it's just they don't want to deal with that. And I think the single statement, you know, goes down exactly that path. And right. That's not how this should behave. There's a, uh, uh, a gotcha that I was trying to remember, and I just looked it up, that I've been burned by. Sometimes it's not as obvious as you got a null. Sometimes you do something that you think is going to give you uh, one result and you get another, like date time. So if you have a date time object, which you like set to now, Mm -hmm. there's a method on that date time object, add days, add years, add seconds, whatever. And if you just say my object dot add days five, and then you look at the object, it's still the same. Right. Because add days returns another date time that has the date time right. set. It's not altering the one you gave it. Yeah. So sometimes it's RTFM, but it doesn't look like, you know, it looks exact. If you're trying to be intuitive about it, you're probably going to be wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So those are those bu- little bugs are hard to find. That's true of some of the, uh, the methods that hang off of... Uh the collections oh, yeah. in .NET, where you call, like, sort. Right. And then it didn't do anything. Right. Because it returned a right. new sorted set. Is yes. there some sort of principle that people are 
uh, a pattern or something that people say that you should be doing that? It doesn't seem logical to me. It seems like if you have an object and there's a sort method on it, it should sort the object. And if it didn't, it should be a static method on the type, not right. on the object. Doesn't that make sense that to you? That does make sense. But I don't, I don't understand why those... And this is a, you know, date time is a Microsoft.net construct. Right. What are you doing? Yeah, I, everything about dates and times makes me nervous. Ner- mad. It's more like it's a, very challenging to get that maddening. stuff right. Yeah, especially if you're doing anything international. Mm-hmm. Throw time zones into the equation. Well, our friend John uh, Skeet has spent a lot of time dealing with time. Yeah. All right. Well, let's keep rolling. You know, the, generally speaking, the whole debugging issue around types is an interesting problem. Uh, you get folks who don't understand all the number types and get into troubles with, trouble with approximations and things. You did the math, you know, anytime you use a floating point in anything that's like accounting related, where when you lose pennies, accountants go nuts. Like, these are the terrible kinds of bugs because it's not like a get on error, not like a crash. It just no, made your customer sad. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and I, like you said in the in my introduction, uh, I spent some time working in the financial industry. Sure, um, and they are the least likely to ever use agile practices. <laughs> right, for that very reason. Yeah, they don't want anything moving quickly. No, right. well, they needed certainty all of the time. They can't be incorrect. Uh, you only get one opportunity to screw up a, a totally of a column of numbers. You know, right. I, and I remember running this years and years ago where, you know, the head of sales knew how much sales was. But when I generated the report that broke it down by region, my total wasn't his total, you know. And I had eliminated data with my query in sure. some fashion that reduced that number. But the moment he came to the conclusion that my numbers could be wrong, never trust another report ever again. His reaction no longer was, what do we do about this data? It's that it was, this data is wrong. Right. Like it's kind of a permanent consequence and very right. tough to win your way back from. So, I mean, this is not debugging. Per, well, it's debugging in the end. It's like you need, when you're dealing with numbers like that, you need to do a reconciliation ahead of time before you show it to anybody. Be sure you're right. Right. Well, and uh, that may be a result of some of our, our agile practices as well. Uh, we get a little cavalier sometimes. Um, well, we'll just, you know, write the code and we've got some tests and then. We'll send it over to QA because yeah, what's the big deal? They no can check problem. It out. Yeah, you actually have to get those numbers right. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is? Ah, it must be that happy time again. Yeah, time to discover through the magic of debugging that the evaluate laughs method returns zero because it was passed an array of nulls. Ah. Uh, dum Laughs equal null. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> null laughs. Garbage in, garbage out. That's <laughs> basically what I'm saying. That's what it is. It's time to give away a Component 1 Studio Enterprise to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, whether you're building the most modern touch-enabled apps or maintaining and updating legacy applications, Component 1's flagship product, Studio Enterprise, helps to deliver rich, responsive desktop and web apps on time and under budget. Awesome, dude. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Sal Scozari. Hey, congratulations, Sal. Sal. Yeah. 
who promptly replied, I hope this isn't a scam. Thank you very much. (laughs) Yes, please send money to this Nigerian prince. Nigerian princes, we are not. Yes. And uh, Sal just won the Component One Studio Enterprise from Component One, a big pile of awesome from them. And hey, if you don't know what we're doing, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. Every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away $5,000 worth of technology to one lucky member of the fan club. But you got to join to win. And we like to ask our guests, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology, what would you buy, sir, Joel? Well, the responsible answer is more uh, computer hardware. But no, we got a lot of that stuff. That's responsible. That's that was <laughs> uh, sort of responsible. Okay. Uh, but the, uh, I would absolutely buy a quadcopter. Okay. <laughs> now, the one of the little ones that you saw them buzzing around the party last night? Or, no, 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 no. A big one? Yeah. Are you uh, talking like a Paratrone? Because um, those are only three or $400. Uh, something like the DJI Inspire yeah. one. Oh, okay. The Phantom Eye. Yeah, yeah, the Phantom. No, yeah. the Inspire is the newer one. Yeah. Oh. So it's oh, got a 4K in- camera. The Inspire. The, you know, the thing controls. I didn't like about what I saw about the Phantom, maybe it was, or mm-hmm. maybe it was a different one was that the blades sometimes get in the picture. Right. So the Inspire actually has articulated uh, arms so that when it takes off, it lifts the entire arm assembly up above the camera. Oh, good. So that doesn't happen anymore. No. And how much is it? Uh, $2,800. Toys. Uh, Excuse me. I'll be right back. (laughs) (laughs) Toys. I'm quite serious about this. What is it called? The Inspire. I've got it up right here. Inspire? (laughs) Yeah. DJI Inspire. DJI Inspire. Honey, I'm going shopping. Sorry. Uh, I'm going to get a phone call about this. I know. Think? Um, Wow. You probably want a couple extra batteries, but. $2,900. And does it come with a camera or do you put one on? It comes with a camera. With a 4K camera? Yes. 12 megapixel. Oh, my. (laughs) <laughs> wow, I am drooling. <laughs> it's got dual control, so one person can fly while someone else runs the gimbal. Nice. And are there videos online of this? DJI oh, Inspire? Yeah. Let, me, let me look. We're, we'll be right back, folks. All right, we have seen the videos. We are impressed. That's very cool. I think I would do the same if I had 5000 to spend on technology, <laughs> which I do, so I'm going to buy one. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Well, we're not going to debug drones today. No. Uh, any particular apps that you usually deal with? Are you a web guy more than client side? Lately, or? a lot of web. Yeah. And then, uh, I mean, then you have, you're dealing with compatibility issues as well. Sure. Um, there's no secret to no. fixing compatibility issues. No, it's you a beating. Work through them. It's one browser after the next, constantly regressing your changes again and again and again. But does web development bring with it any specific challenges for debugging other than the obvious, you know, don't do it in production kind of thing? Well, I mean, there's always the issue of client-side code. Right. Um, yeah. You've got code executing on uh, machines that you don't yeah. have any control over. Yeah. And you, need to, and you need to deal with that. There are tools out there. I don't know if you've ever used any of them. Stuff like preemptive analytics and New Relic that are like real-time instrumentation. You could effectively use them for debugging. Yeah, we've used New Relic in the past for that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not cheap. 
Like, it does cost money to, no. to use New Relic, but uh, if you've really got an app out in the field, it can make a huge difference because you're really getting the feedback from your customers' machines. Right. Or even things like uh, TrackJS. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a good one, too. Tell us about TrackJS. Uh, so it's just a JavaScript library, so obviously it doesn't uh, track anything server-side. Yeah. But uh, it does uh, profile all of your client-side code and uh, does logging. Profiling your client-side code. So would it tell you if you wrote something stupid before you ran it? Probably not. No. But it might tell you... After you ran it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's the... true of a lot of JavaScript. Yeah, right. Uh, one of the big problems with JavaScript, of course, and spas in particular, is memory leaks and mm-hmm. not killing objects and deleting them uh, appropriately. Is that going to help with that? Track JS? Uh, I think it would. But look at the main thing it's doing here. I'm just looking at the website. Is it's grabbing the errors that occur on the browser and getting them back to you, mm-hmm. right? Right, which normally doesn't happen. And you, and That's if you right. count on the user to do that, you're really in trouble because they do a terrible job of it. The fact that you could automate, right. if an error occurs on this browser, I want to know. Yeah. The That's user will send you an email that says, the internet broke. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's right. Can you fix my internet, please? I actually had, and you can bleep this, but I actually had a customer call me at 3 o'clock in the morning and say, Carl, I'm doing a demo of the website, and it doesn't work. And I said, can you be a little more explicit? And he says, it doesn't f***ing work. <laughs> That was very helpful. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. You're my favorite customer. Yeah. Now go. Never mind. Never mind. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you're willing to assemble the kit, I guess, there's enough free tools out there, especially in the web space, to instrument pretty much anything. Right. The errors are out there. You just have to go find them. Right. That, with the exception of if you're swallowing the errors. Yeah. You'd eat them yourself. Well, like I said, don't, don't catch what you can't handle. What are some of the other things that you cover in your in your talk that we haven't talked about? Uh, that's a lot of it. Um, don't be afraid of the code. Like I said, if you've got the actual code, you can go find out what it did. Right. A lot of the time, uh, you're, the, the place where I find that developers spend time uh, and they say, oh, I can't figure out what's wrong, is code they didn't write. Yeah. And so they're not familiar with it. And we're all to differing degrees, a little bit lazy about yeah. actually doing the work right. of reading through line by line and finding out what's going on. I did a code review once for uh, a developer who found that he was wasting time looking for stuff. You know, he, I, Debugging is really hard, he says. And then I watch him write code, and he spends most of his time scrolling up and scrolling down and scrolling up and scrolling down and looking for stuff. And, and the obvious answer is you need to decompose this into, you know, you need to do some refactoring. Right. Turn this into some smaller routines right. instead of having everything on one page, s- smaller files, you know. Well, and additionally, you know, if you're, if you're doing uh, try-catches, uh, only, only wrap small pieces of code in a try-catch right. so that you can right. limit what's breaking uh, There's relatively few things you can catch in this tri block. Right. Um, you know, and then when you get the uh, null reference exception, there maybe was only like one thing that could have been null. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Instead of your entire class. Right. Somewhere in this code. Somewhere. <laughs> now you've got Something two problems. Something was null. <laughs> yeah. 
you know that joke about uh, I had a problem and then I used SharePoint and now I have two problems or whatever. <laughs> you know, insert your joke, yeah. your, your technology. I saw a great one, which was I had a problem, so I used Java. Now I have a problem factory. <laughs> Yeah, I, I could definitely bet you a class that'll make you bugs. I could do that. <laughs> Bug factories. <laughs> but it, it, the visual on that is pretty awesome. Nice. But, it, you know, one of the interesting things about this is fairly hard to practice debugging until you're under the gun. Right. Until it's a piece of code that really matters and now it's not working. And right. You're, you're, and, and it's broken probably in production. Yeah. That's can, when you really hit it. Can we gamify debugging? Can we make a debugging game that's actually fun to play? I don't know about fun to play, but you can <laughs> certainly make the game. Have you, ever, have you ever seen anything like that? That's strange. In teaching, you know, you see it in instruction, like some places when they're trying to teach you how to debug mm -hmm. or how to, how to write code, they will say, you know, here's some code, run this, and then try to figure out what's going on. If you've ever seen uh, the Ruby cones. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which are very much right. that sort of, here's some broken code. Yeah, right. figure Go it fix out. It. You don't see that anywhere than Ruby, like that, that Cohen model. I don't know if we've ever built .NET examples like that. No, um, uh, Uncle Bob does that kind of stuff yeah. in his courses. Yeah, Cones and Katas. Yeah. You mean you could apply it to any language, but sure. it's just an interesting exercise to not be under the gun as part of a learning exercise. Like, there's a bug in here somewhere. Go find right. it, track it down, try and fix it. And they could be subtle things. You know, you could have, a, you know, you, you led this conversation off of this idea of we don't teach debugging, but we could. You know, Absolutely, we, we, we could. could keep a couple and, and really mean bugs too, you know, <laughs> fence post errors and hidden null events. The, the errors that happen every other Tuesday on three specific computers. Right. You know, one of those. I had a, I had a system that was, deadlocking at peak, you know, between five and six in the evening, the website at its highest load, we'd get these deadlock errors. And I'm talking to the devs about let's do error handling. Let's error handle our way out of it. If you fail, just wait and recover. And they, they hate that solution, right? No, it's your database. Make it go away. And mm -hmm. I can't make, reproduce it in, in, in the lab. Right. Because it's only at the highest velocities, only mm -hmm. at the most stress. And so, to, you know, in desperation, I'm like, I'm going to turn on um, SQL profiling. Ooh. I'm going to collect every single statement, SQL statement running through this database at peak to try and find this deadlock. Mm. And so I said, and I'm terrified because it's going to be gigs yeah, of log slow data, things down. And it's going to impact everything while yeah. it does it. And I ran it for the hour, no deadlock. Because the observer effect kicked in. I changed the timing on everything and made the deadlock go away. And so oh. the developer said, leave it on. <laughs> Do you use IntelliTrace? I don't. Okay. Because uh, of Ultimate Edition? Right. Yeah. Just like code lens, right? I'm frustrated that the best tools that Microsoft makes, they've isolated to you know, folks that are either MVPs, and you get one, or have... Twelve grand to spend on studio. So IntelliTrace is one of those things that if you absolutely can't figure out because things are happening in such real time, you can turn it on and it generates a ton of data. What was the metric you used to say in your DevOps talk 
about IntelliTrace, about turning that thing on and, and watching everything fill up. Was it IntelliTrace that you were doing? No. I'm, when, it, when the DevOps talk was talking about preemptive, which was much more, much more careful about impacting performance, because I've seen the same thing with IntelliTrace that I just described with, with SQL Profiler, where right. the process of instrumenting it altered the behavior enough that the problem went away. Yeah. And you can get deadlock conditions inside of dot method methods too, right? We yeah. run into this really high velocity websites. So we're doing a lot of computation and you get multiple entrants into a call and things get ugly. Yeah. But that tool is one that can, you can then play back and step through like a, like a, well, like it's a movie. Li- yeah. It's literally capturing every method call, which is why it just spits a tremendous amount right. of data. Out. Gigs and gigs. Yeah. It's crazy uh, hard on the system. Right. But uh, and it slows everything down. Then you basically, you know, you it's in there. You know, it's just like per- performance monitor. Mm. It's in there. You right. just can't find it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's, I know I have a copy of the failure <laughs> somewhere in this big pile of data. Yeah, N needle. Yes. N haystack. But it, you know, the, when we talk about modern debugging these days, other than getting past the syntactical issues, just getting your code written to the point of running, I I just. You know, I, as, as a guy who spent a lot of the dot-com boom and things like that doing web performance testing where we had an infinite supply of money, essentially, so we're piling all these servers and load testing everything, like, they were just lies. It was incredibly hard to create a load that looked like a human. And now, today, where I think we're a much leaner way of doing web development, we're just instrumenting production. Just you can't do it with something like IntelliTrace or SQL Profiler. It's got to be these lighter weight tools. TrackJS looks like a great candidate for something that's not going to lean on the client too hard. And I might certainly my experience with preemptive analytics is that you can leave this running in production all of the time. Yeah, and it, you won't notice it, right? In terms of its overhead. Well, they they attach to these methods and do their communication on low priority background asynchronous, all those sorts of things, and they will. We, we were testing this under extreme load and we were tipping over the server and you could see preemptive shut itself down ahead of time because yeah. it could see that it was going to start having an effect on the system. So first it would cache its data and stop sending it. And then it would just bail. It's like, okay, well, we're not getting any resources back and so we're going to stop. Which is mostly a function of OS scheduling. But, mm. but anyway, they, they use those prior, low priorities so that when, you know, when constraints happen, they're the first ones. To yeah, and they're not part of the back. problem. Yeah. You know, trying not to be. But that's a very different style of debugging, I think. Trying to look at the state of... Well, New Relic, I think, arguably even did this better. You've got all these different pieces into play. You know, a call to a website at Velocity when there's 10,000 people doing it. And you've got rendering engines running and you've got back-end processes running and calls to databases. And you're trying to figure out where it's going wrong. Like debug.print's not going to save you there. Yeah. There's so many moving parts. It takes a really sophisticated tool to give you some sense of coherence of this was the web page request that led to this rendering request that led to this object call that led to this database statement. So, so for web stuff, you have TrackJS on the front end. Any suggestions for tools on the back end? Um, I've used New Relic in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also tools like Glimpse. Right, of course, right. yeah. Great tool. Yeah. Anthony and Nick, and uh, Glimpse is one of those things that you install, and it gives you in the in the browser window all sorts of analytics on the server side. Right, but it can can dive all the way to the back end. Yeah, right. Yeah, it does. It provides the whole thing, and uh, we we've had the boys on the show before. They make right. it, they make a lovely product. 
and the fact that you view it from the browser is kind of cool, but mm-hmm. it, it does a pretty good job mm-hmm. poking all the way into it. But it is, it's still a free tool, you right. know, with, so you can't argue with the price, but right. it, it does have a certain level of constraints. What made you want to get into the whole field of debugging as a speaker? Or maybe, I, don't I mean, know if as a speaker. Specifically, that made me want to get into it, but. Maybe not as a speaker, because that's sort of a natural outgrowth of your experience, but when did you wake up one day and say, you know, debugging, yeah, that's my thing? I don't know. I just, uh, apparently I had a knack for it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, turned into a, a situation. I guess part of it is a, a scenario of being like a, a like the senior most developer in, mm. in, in any given shop. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at some point there's someone uh, at the top of your development hierarchy that uh, if they can't figure it out, no one will figure it out. We're all going <laughs> to yeah. die. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I've worked, uh, spent some time in some smaller shops, um, you know, and if you're the most senior guy there, right. they have a problem. and It's eventually going to land on your desk. You just go, f- go figure it out. Yeah. What's, a, what's a typical problem that you were able to solve that your, your guys were not? Um, there's a wide variety. Uh, everything from... Uh, SQL query performances. Um, yeah. That is sort of the nature of diagnostic work, too. It's like you touch everything. Yeah. You know, in some ways you end up not being an expert in anything, but, you know, you have to have, you know enough SQL and enough TCPIP and enough HTTP and enough JavaScript to be able to touch all right. of those different you've things. You've got an error. You've got SQL Profiler running. You've got yeah. Fiddler running. Yeah. You've got... <laughs> all these ways to look... Yeah, we never talk about Fiddler enough, honestly. It's one of those tools. Yeah, Just keep that one in your pocket. It will save your life. For those who don't know Fiddler, that is, uh, it shows you the web traffic going over, going over TCPIP, essentially. Yep. Well, it's uh, Eric Lawrence, right? Yeah. Yeah, Well, Telerik now. Yeah, Yeah. he works for Telerik, but uh, it's still him. What's on your to-do list? What's in your inbox? Um... I do a few conferences a year, uh, general work. Mm-hmm. Get another conference coming up? Uh, I think the next one's uh, KCDC oh, right yeah. in June. Great show. Yeah. We're going to try to get into that one next we, year, We've been there before. Yeah, next year. We should year, go though. back. We should go back next well, year. Well, it's Lee Brand, right? He's yeah. a good man. Yeah. Love it. Well, we look forward to that. These Midwestern shows. We've forgotten, I think. Yeah. yeah first time back and you know, being in Nebraska and stuff just sort of reminds us. It's nice. It's a great place to be. Smart people. A lot of fun. Well, Joel, thanks for talking to us. You bet. All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time.